For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. In today's teaching, we finish our three-part series on John chapter 17. Now let's join Pastor Jim with the message entitled, Jesus Prays for Us. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to the sanctuary for tonight's Bible study. And if you have your Bibles, please bust them open to John's Gospel chapter 17. We're going to finish our three-part series on the prayer of Jesus Christ. So John chapter 17, while you guys are doing that, I'm going to pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful to be here tonight, the opportunity to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to become more like him, the perfect being. And so we sit here tonight like Mary at the feet of Jesus, and our desire is to hear his voice to hear the Spirit speaking to the church. And so I pray that you would take my simple message and your God-breathed, Holy Spirit-anointed word and make a difference in our hearts and lives tonight. Because it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we've been looking at John chapter 17, the prayer of Jesus Christ to God the Father, a little inner Trinitarian conversation And I really want you guys to put yourselves there. Put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Remember, it's nighttime. It's the eve of Jesus' death. The shadow of the cross has overtaken him. They've just finished a final meal together. We call it the Last Supper. And Jesus gave some words of exhortation and some words of encouragement to the guys there. We find that in John chapters 13 through 16. And after all of that, they get up, they leave the upper room, and they begin to walk towards the Mount of Olives. They begin to walk towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And all of a sudden, as they're walking, Jesus stops, and he lifts his eyes up to heaven, and he prays to God the Father. He commits everything to the Father in prayer. Now remember, prayer reveals that which is important to a person, that which is on their heart, that which is on their mind, their desires, their passions, their struggles, their dreams. And so by studying John chapter 17, we've been learning about that which is near and dear to the heart of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if it's near and dear to him, it's near and dear to us. Now in verses one through five, we looked at Jesus' prayer for himself. And remember, he prayed that he would be glorified. And there were three reasons that Jesus wanted to be glorified. The first reason is that when he is glorified, God the Father is glorified. Secondly, when he is glorified, that brings eternal life to you and to me. And then the third reason that Jesus prayed to be glorified is because the glory rightfully belongs to him because he is God. We also learned that Jesus would be glorified, that all of his wow factors 
would be, would, he would receive that glory through the cross. And so what was ultimately important to Jesus in his prayer? The cross. What was on his heart? What was on his mind? The cross. And so we learned that we should be a cross-focused people. Then last week, we looked at verses 6 through 19, where Jesus prayed for the 11 disciples who were there with him. And Jesus prayed for their protection. And we learned that that protection would come through two means. First, that protection would come through the power of his name. For anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, there would be a protection over their soul. There would be eternal security. There would be forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future. And there would also be a protection of their daily life. You could call upon the name of Jesus for help in any situation, in any circumstance, and because he cares and because he lives, he will answer and he will meet your need. So protection through the power of his name, and then also, secondly, a protection through the power of his word. See, his word teaches us that we are not of this world, therefore we should not seek to assimilate, become like the world, and also protection comes through his word by teaching us how to live for the world which we truly do belong to, all while living in this world which is sinful and broken. And so Jesus says, hey, Father, sanctify them through the truth. Your word is truth. And so what was on Jesus' heart for us? that we would be protected through trusting in his name and through trusting in his word. And so we're to be a word-focused people. Now tonight, Jesus is going to pray for you and he's going to pray for me and I think that's pretty cool. So let's see what's on Jesus' heart for us. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone not for the 11 disciples alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Wow, that is rich and that is deep. And so Jesus here shifts his prayer focus from those 11 disciples, and now he is praying for those who will believe in him through their word. He is praying for future believers, for those who would simply hear the good news, who would simply hear the gospel, the good news about him, and respond with a confession of faith. 
You see, Jesus understood why he came. He knew that his mission to seek and save the lost, he knew that it was going to be a success. He knew that the cross was not going to be in vain, and he knew that evangelistic efforts would be successful. He knew that the gospel, that the good news about him and what he was going to do, that that would be the power of God and that people would come into the kingdom. And so having that knowledge, because he is God and he knows everything, he looks down through the corridors of time and he sees your face and he sees your faith And he says, I'm going to pray for you. He sees your face, and he sees your faith. And he says, I'm going to pray for you, Jim. I'm going to pray for you, Denny. I'm going to pray for you, Mike, and Todd, and Susie. He says, I'm going to pray for you. I don't know about you, but that's deeply moving to me. That's touching to me. That's a life-changing truth to know that, that while Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross, that he had me on his mind, that he had you on his mind. He was thinking about you on the eve of his death. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's praying. He's praying for future believers. He's praying for us here tonight. You were on his mind That's the kind of love and obsession that God has over you. He's crazy about you. Verse 23 tells us that that the love that God has for us is the same love that is shared between the Father and the Son. The same intensity that the Father loves the Son is the same kind of intensity with which he loves you and with which he loves me. That blows my mind, that I was on the mind of Jesus Christ as he was going to the cross. He's hanging there on the cross, and he's thinking, all for them, Father, the nails for Jim, the nails for for you. He's thinking about us. You see, I know with absolute confidence because of this prayer of Jesus Christ that in this very moment, as he's praying, for those who will believe in his name, I know that he's looking down through the corridors of time and he looks to March 2004 and he sees a young, strung out junkie in Chowchilla, California, hanging out in an RV. A kid who's lost, a kid who's ruined his life, a kid who's depressed, a kid who has no hope, a kid who has no future, me. He sees me. And he watches as I hear the gospel presented to me for the first time. And he watches as the invitation is given to me, do you want to receive Jesus Christ? And he watches as I call upon his name. And in this moment, in his mind, he's saying, I'm praying for Jim. I'm praying for those who will believe on me through their word, through their confession. You see, I know with absolute confidence 
that Jesus is looking down through time and he's looking to February 8th. He sees a young man come to our fellowship last Monday and meet with myself and with Nick. And this young man has many problems, but through the course of the conversation, he realizes that his biggest problem is that he doesn't have Jesus in his life. And he watches as this young man prays to receive Jesus. And Jesus says, that's who I'm praying for. And he looks down through time and he sees you. He sees that moment in time where you put your trust in the Savior, where you called upon his name, your confession of faith. And he says, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for that person. Mind-blowing. You know, one of the things that I love about being a Christian is that the Lord makes it so easy for us. It's a simple confession of faith. We believe in him through our word. There's no payment. There's no works. It's just faith and trust in him. He dies for us. He rises from the grave for us. He offers to give us the Holy Spirit. The only part we have to play is trusting in Jesus Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you shall be saved. If you're here tonight, I encourage you to make that great confession of faith, to call upon the name of Jesus Christ. Perhaps the Lord in this text right now is thinking of you who are sitting here tonight and tonight is your night that you're gonna call upon his name. He's thinking of you right now. So, Jesus has us in mind. He has you in mind as he's going to the cross and he prays for us. He prays for future believers. You see, Jesus understood that everything was about to change. He understood that the work was done. He came to be crucified. He came to die on the cross for our sins. And in his mind, it was a done deal. And now it's time for him to return It's time to him to return to the right hand of God the Father and and, and back to the place of his glory. Gone are the times where people would be sitting in church with an open Bible, listening to Jesus in the flesh as he preached the word. Gone are the times of people seeing Jesus in the flesh, reach out his hand and touch a leper and heal that person or open the eyes of the blind, or open the ears of the deaf. Gone are the times of people personally receiving an invitation to come to him. They won't see that come out of his mouth in the flesh. They won't hear, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened. They won't hear that come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those times are gone. Now, his preaching and his teaching and his miracles, and his invitations to salvation, now this would all come through his people. Now it would come through us. Now it would come through you, and it would come through me. 
And so Jesus is going to pray for two supernatural realities that are to be a part of the Christian experience that can't be explained in any other way other than this. It must be God, it must be Jesus, it must be his power, it must be his Holy Spirit. He's gonna pray for two supernatural realities that are to be a part of the Christian experience that can't be explained in any other way other than this. It must be God, it must be Jesus, it must be his power, it must be his spirit. Two supernatural realities that will cause Christians to say, he must be with us. And it will cause non-Christians to say, he must be with them, you see? And so his first prayer request The first supernatural reality that he prays for into our lives is for us to be unified. He prays for us to be unified. Verse 21, he says that all of them may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity. And so he's praying for us. He's praying for a unity. He's praying for togetherness. He's praying for a commonness, a commonness of heart, a commonness of mind, a commonness of character, a commonness of hope, a a unity of purpose. Commentator Kent Hughes, he says, this unity that, that Jesus is praying for is modeled after and enabled by the Godhead. The unity that Jesus is praying into our lives and into our Christian experience is modeled after the unity that is found within the Holy Trinity. Check out verse 21. Jesus says that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. And then in verse 22, that they may be one, as we are one. And so the unity that Jesus prays into our life is modeled after and resembles the unity that we find within the Holy Trinity, within the Godhead. We think of the Godhead, we think of the unity of persons. We have the Father, the Holy Father, the Righteous Father. We have the Son, and we have the Holy Spirit, three persons, and yet they are one. They are inseparable, one being, one essence. There is a a unity of character and a unity of attributes, right? They are all omniscient. They know everything, all powerful, omnipotent, and all everywhere at the same time, omnipresent. There is this unity of attributes, all power, all knowledge, everywhere, perfectly loving, perfectly kind, perfectly gracious, perfectly merciful, all three members of the Godhead possessing these attributes in complete unity. There is a unity of purpose. The Father and the Son and the the Holy Spirit, they are all about the same thing, loving one another and loving humanity, the salvation of souls. There is an equality as well within the Godhead. 
God the Father and God the Son are not fighting. The Son is not trying to overthrow the Father and say, the throne is mine now. The Spirit is not trying to overthrow the Father and vice versa. There is an equality. I love this scripture in Psalm verse 45, chapter 45 and verse 6. God the Father speaking to God the Son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so the Father calls the Son God. And then the Son, all throughout the New Testament, refers to the Father as my God. There is this equality. No one's trying to overthrow another within the Godhead. So there's this unity, and yet there is such diversity within the Godhead. There are different persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. The Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. There are three persons, diversity, and yet there is unity. They are one. And then there is different function within the Godhead, right? The Father sent his Son, and the Father poured out his wrath upon his Son. And the Son is the one who came. He is the one who sent and he is the one who drunk the, drank the cup of God's wrath. He is the one who endured the suffering and the shame. And then we think of the function of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? He is the one who convicts us of our sin, our need for righteousness, and telling us of the judgment to come. And so within the Godhead, there is a unity, but there is also diversity. And so the unity that Jesus prays into our life is a unity that is modeled after the Godhead. And so unity with diversity within the Godhead, so too within the Christian church, there should be unity with diversity. And I think that's exactly what we see from the institutional level all the way down to the individual. And I'm talking about gospel-believing churches and gospel-believing individuals. I'm not talking about ecumenicalism where all religions are blended together. I'm talking about gospel-believing churches. There is unity, and yet there is diversity. I mean, think of how many different churches are in our community, and they're so diverse. I mean, just think of the names of the different churches alone. We have Soma, we have Harvest, we have Refuge, we have Grace, so many different churches, so many different names. They all represent something else. Think of the different philosophies of ministry. Some churches teach through the Bible verse by verse. Other churches are topical. Think of the different worship styles. You have contemporary music. You, you have churches where it's old-fashioned, just hymns, that's it. You have churches where there's no music allowed whatsoever. You have churches that clap, churches like ours that don't clap. Uh, you have, <laughs> right? Sometimes we do. You have churches with different opinions on non-essentials. The rapture, we're a pre-tribulational rapture church. There are other churches in the community that believe in the post-trib and the mid-trib and the pan-trib. There is diversity on an institutional level. Each church within the community taking on its own personal identity and role in God's plan. And there's also diversity uh, on the individual level. 
I stand out in front of the church just about every Sunday. It's my favorite job is to, is to greet everybody who comes in. It's the only way that you'll ever get to say hi to every single person that comes to our church is if you stand out front and greet. And this Sunday, as I was watching everybody come in, I was noticing the rich diversity that we have in our fellowship. So many different people from so many different walks of life. I see Michael, he comes into church and man, he comes in and, and he comes in and he comes up and he hugs me. He's got this big smile. And I'm like, man, this is a great guy, great Christian. And then another friend of mine comes in and I go to give him a hug and he wants nothing to do with it. He says, get away from me. So they're, they're diverse in, in, in that sense. And then you've got Ernie and Terry. I, I love Ernie. He's this rough, tough cowboy. He's got his cowboy boots on. His shirt's always tucked in. Concrete worker. You don't mess with Ernie. And then you've got his wife. Terry. I mean, there's diversity right there within that relationship. I don't know how that happened. The sweetest gal in the church. We call her Grandma Puckett because of all the wonderful, tasty treats that she makes. There is this rich diversity. I think of just, I'm just thinking, you know, surface level, okay? People with their different hairdos. You got some people who come in with their, their hair parted perfectly, and then you've got young adults who walk in the church and they got pink hair and it's spiked up everywhere. I mean, you got diversity of personalities. You got people who are loud. You got people who are quiet. You have diversity of gifts, people who can preach, people who can pray people who have the gift of mercy, people who have the gift of giving. You have rich people, you have poor people, you have black people, you have white people. There is a diversity within the church of Jesus Christ. And yet there is a unity. There is a unity. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 describes it like this this unity with diversity, like a human body. There are so many different parts to the human body. You've got your toes, you've got your hands, you've got your eyes, you've got your ears. Different parts, different functions. They look different, but they are unified. They are one. They serve a common purpose. So unity with diversity. Revelation chapter seven and verse nine says, John, the Apostle John, he catches a glimpse of heaven and he says, There's, I saw people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation praising God Almighty. Unity with diversity. Now, what brings people of the world together? What brings the people of the world together? It's their shared interests and their shared likes, Right? Hobbies, sports, culture, music, lifestyle, that's what brings the world together. And all of those things are temporal bonds. But what brings us together? What brings a people with such diversity, people of different generations, different socioeconomic standing, different culture, different personalities. What brings us together? Because it doesn't make any sense. What brings us together? What unifies us? Jesus, an eternal destiny that we all share. We share an eternal experience and we share an eternal 
destiny. You see, everyone who's trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted in the name of Jesus Christ, then tonight you share the same experience and the same destiny as everyone else who's ever trusted in the Lord. We've all trusted in the same Savior. We've all come to him in the same way, by faith. We've all been forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, all of us. We've all escaped the same fate, hell, and the lake of fire. We all have the same God, the same Father, the same Lord, the same Spirit. We're all being transformed. We've all been given a new nature, and the Spirit is living inside of all of us. And he's doing the same work in me that he's doing in you. He's making us more like his son, Jesus Christ. It is, we are sharing the same experience. There is a unity in our experience. And we all have the same hope. We're hoping in heaven. That's where we are going. We share that. It is a unity that we have. A shared eternal experience, a shared eternal destiny. It's a supernatural connection, a supernatural unity that we all share, that we all experience, and it cannot ever be undone by anything, by anyone, because Jesus Christ prayed for it. Because Jesus Christ prayed for it. We are unified, and that is a reality because Jesus Christ prayed for it. That's probably why when you meet a Christian, uh, you can connect with them right away. Christians over in Asia, Africa, right here at home. You meet them for the first time, and it feels like you go way back. It's because you have the same experience, and you have the same destiny. A lot of times we connect more with Christians that we've just met than with our own family members who aren't even believers because we're on different paths. I remember my first time going to church, Coastside Community Church in Pacifica, California, and I just had just given my heart to Jesus about a week before that, and I go into the church and everybody's clapping Everybody's singing. Everybody's eager to hear the word of God. And I felt it. I felt the connection. And the thought came into my mind, this is what I have been missing my entire life. This is home. This is my family. What was I experiencing? The prayer of Jesus. That supernatural reality the unity, the supernatural reality that made me realize, oh, he must be here. He must be with us because this is not normal. This is otherworldly. The unity that we experience causes us to realize that even though he's not here in the flesh, we know he's here. And it causes us to realize that even though we can't see him here in the flesh, we see him. We know that he is here, that he is with us. So it's this mystical unity that God works in us, and it is absolutely amazing. But there is also this practical unity 
There is also this practical unity that requires effort from us. It's a unity that we need to strive for because there are just some things in life that you can't do alone, like Monopoly. <laughs> can't play Monopoly alone, ladies and gentlemen. And if you do play Monopoly alone, it's kind of weird. <laughs> you can't be the hat and the shoe. It's just, and roll the dice and you buy the property and then your next guy lands on that property and then you, it's just weird. Riding a two-person bike all by yourself? I mean, you can do it, but it's kind of weird. Going out for a fancy dinner at a fancy restaurant all by yourself on Valentine's Day? That's kind of weird. You see, there are some things in life that you just can't do alone. And one of those things, the most important of them all, is living for the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't do it alone. You need his family. You need his people. We need each other. Lone Ranger Christianity just doesn't work. We're meant to be together. We're meant to be unified. You know, my buddy Chris and I have been working out lately. You guys could probably tell, you know, the changes. Um, <laughs> Sorry, honey, she's hiding her face. <laughs> Working out is challenging, right? It's hard work, you know? So we meet two or three times a week, most weeks. And, uh, you know, we do squats, we do back rows, and we do bench press. You know, you put 225 pounds on the bar, and by the fifth rep, you know, you're coming down and you're thinking, you know what? I'm really glad that you're here with me, Chris, right now. I'm really glad that you're here to help me, to assist me in lifting these burdens. Because if you weren't here, man, I would be in serious trouble, right? I'd be dead. <laughs> now, if working your body is hard, how much more difficult is it to work our souls? You see, we need each other. We need this practical unity. We need to see each other the way the scripture says it, that we are a family and that we are meant to do life together. We need each other for support. We need each other for encouragement, for strength. We need each other for accountability. We need each other to help bear one another's burdens just like Galatians chapter six tells us. I want you guys to look around the room right now. Go ahead, look around the room. These are your brothers. These are your sisters. This is your family, the family of God. These are the people. These are the people. Don't make it awkward now, come on. <laughs> just, just a little glance, okay? <laughs> These are the people that God has ordained to help you live for him, to help you live a holy life, to help you live a pure life, to help you fulfill the calling that he has for you, to help you do the good works that God has called you to do. You cannot do it apart from one another. We need each other. And so these are the people that God has ordained to help you 
live for him, and also to help you reach your world for Christ. You see, unity makes for effective evangelism. Listen to Jesus in verse 21. He says, that the world may believe, that the world may believe, this unity. I pray for this unity so that the world may believe. And then in verse 23, I pray for this unity to let the world know that you have sent me. To let the world know that you have sent me. You see, unity makes for effective evangelism. You see, when non-believers see people with such diversity loving one another with with such intensity, with a love that is supernatural, with the love that God has put in us, a love that causes us to forgive one another, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is others-centered. When non-believers see that, it draws them. It draws them. It creates a desire within them. It it, it causes them to scratch their heads. It creates this longing. It's irresistible. It's irresistible. And they say, that's not normal. That's otherworldly. I haven't seen anything like that kind of love that I see in those people anywhere on the planet. I don't see that anywhere except for in the church. And they say, it must be God. It must be Jesus. It must be the real deal. And they begin to open up to the gospel. You see, this supernatural reality that Jesus prays for, this this unity among us, it causes us to say, oh yeah, Jesus must be with us. And it causes non-believers to say, he must be with them. God must be. Be with them because that's otherworldly. That's a supernatural kind of love. You see, unity makes for effective evangelism. This is why I believe that church planting is the most effective form of evangelism on the face of the planet because you get a bunch of Christians who are just loving Jesus and they're loving one another And they take that to a community and the community begins to witness that love, something they've never seen before and they begin to scratch their heads and they begin to wonder and they begin to ask questions and then they get saved and then it spreads throughout the whole community. Calvary Chapel, The Rock. I remember the first time I met Pastor Ross. So I went to Calvary Chapel, Petaluma from 2004 to 2009. And I had a good buddy who uh, started attending here at The Rock. It was Calvary Chapel, Sebastopol at the time. And he invited me to uh, share my testimony at the Redwood Gospel Mission. And so I went to the Redwood Gospel Mission and, and uh, Pastor Ross was there. He was listening to me share my testimony. And I remember afterwards I came up and he introduced himself to me and he started talking about The Rock And he said, yeah, people are calling it the love shack. (laughs) The love shack? He says, yeah, it's the love shack, because once you come here, you'll never go back, you know? (laughs) He didn't say it like that, but it was kind of like that. The love shack. And so that kind of stuck with me. Well, my family and I, we moved to Sebastopol, and so naturally, we started attending church in our community. 
which is Calvary Chapel, Sebastopol. And we went there, and it's about 150 people. I remember uh, Jim Smith introducing himself to me right there at the front door. And I just remember 150 people who were just loving each other and loving Jesus. And it just made me and it made my family want to be a part of this community. And then the church moves here to Santa Rosa. And the church has now 700 people. What is so attractive about this fellowship? What is so attractive about what is going on in here? It's the unity. It's the love of Jesus Christ that God's people are sharing with each other. And so people in Santa Rosa are like, oh, yeah, I've heard about the rock. Those people are awesome. They love each other. They're preaching the word. They're living out the word. You see, unity makes for effective evangelism. Not only has our church grown, but we're impacting the entire world. The unity and the love that's in this place is reaching India and Africa and points all over the globe. You see, unity makes for effective evangelism because it causes people to say, oh, he must be with them. And so there's this mystical unity, but there's also this practical unity. And so we can pray, Father, thank you for the unity that we have, the shared experience and destiny, and also help us, Lord, to connect with one another and to love one another. So Jesus prays the first supernatural reality is for us to be unified. And then the second supernatural reality, and I think we're almost done, is for us to see him glorified. It's for us to see him glorified. Hands down, my new favorite verse in the entire Bible, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. To be with me where I am and to see my glory. Hands down, new favorite Bible verse. William MacDonald says this, every time a believer dies, it is in a sense an answer to this prayer. Every time a believer dies, it is in a sense an answer to Jesus' prayer. You see, the moment a Christian dies, a moment a Christian passes from this life to the next, they are ushered into the presence of God Almighty and they see the King of glory. They see the one who created the universe, and it's going to be awesome. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse eight says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment you take your last breath on earth is the moment you take your first breath in heaven and see the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter, the apostle Peter, he saw Jesus in his glory on Mount Hermon, He saw the glory of his divinity shine through the veil of his humanity there uh, on the top of Mount Hermon. We call it the Mount of Transfiguration. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, he's still writing about it and thinking about it because it, it blew his mind. He says it was majestic. It was powerful. And if you read the account, those guys fall down like dead men. It was so wonderful and so powerful. John chapter, or John, the apostle John in Revelation chapter one, 
He gets to see Jesus in all of his glory. He sees his robe that goes all the way down to his feet. His feet are are like bronze that were in a furnace and now they're glowing. He sees the hair of Jesus white like wool. He sees his face and it's shining like the sun in all of its brilliance and he looks into the eyes of Jesus and they're like eyes of fire blazing with love for him and he falls down on his face, overcome with the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter five talks about everyone standing before the throne of God and standing around the lamb, Jesus Christ. He is the lamb of God who was slain. They're standing around him, casting down their crowns and falling down before him. Why? Because of his glory. Jesus says, I want them to see my glory. I want them to be with me. That's your destiny. If you're a Christian tonight, that is your destiny. You are going to see the glorious face of Jesus Christ. You need to let that sink in. You're going to see his face. That is your destiny. My kids, uh, they have a, an author. It's their favorite author, was their favorite author. He's famous all throughout the world. They have all of his books, and we found out that he was coming to town. And so we decided to go and see him to get all of their books autographed, Jeff Kinney, the author of Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And so we go down to Petaluma, and the line stretches down the street, down the stairs, Copperfields, down the stairs, down the street, all the way to Starbucks. And we waited forever just to see his face and to have his books autographed by him. And that just reminded me of the one that I'm waiting to see. He's famous, and I have all of his books, and I'm willing to wait. I'll wait as long as it takes to see his beautiful face. Jesus, the author of life, the one who made the world, the one who made me twice, first time in my mother's womb and then caused me to be born again through the gospel and through the work of his spirit, the one who hung on the cross. I'm gonna get to do what Thomas did, stick my finger in the holes in his hands and in his side. It's gonna be fantastic. You know, when I first became a Christian, I went to church for the first time and I had this experience where I had like a vision where I, where I saw the Lord come down and I, and I remember seeing him but seeing through him and seeing this black shadow and watching him breathe out of his mouth and it coming into that dark shadow. It was an incredible experience and it only lasted for a moment. It was just a vision. It was, it was awesome but it was, it was just a vision. That's it. There's coming a day where I'm gonna get much more than just a glimpse. I'm gonna see him, you're gonna see him face to face in all of his wonder and all of his majesty and all of his glory. Psalm 63 and verse two, David says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and I have beheld your power and glory. He saw him, he caught a glimpse, and so now he earnestly seeks God, he thirsts after God, he searches after God, he says there in Psalm 63 and verse two. 
You see, we have this supernatural hope, this supernatural reality, a supernatural assurance. We all have it that we're going to see him. And even though we can't see him right now, we know we're going to. We know it's a done deal because Jesus Christ prayed for it. We know it's going to happen. It's a hope, it's an assurance in our heart. And that supernatural reality lets us know, oh yeah, he must be with us then because that's not normal. And it lets non-believers know when they hear and they see the hope and assurance that we have in the afterlife, they begin to think, oh, he must be with them. He must be alive. He must be real. And it draws them to him. Now, I believe that Jesus is here. I believe that he's here tonight, even right now. The Bible says that Jesus is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. That's the church. He's here tonight. He's alive. He's risen from the dead. And I believe that he wants us to know something. It's his final words that we find in this prayer. And by the way, Jesus is continually praying for us. He's never stopped. Hebrews 7.25 says that. He ever lives to intercede. So he's still praying this for us. And we find it in verse 26. It's a promise that he gives to all future believers. A promise that he gives to you. A promise that he gives to me. He says that he's in us. Verse 26, he says, I'm in you. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, he's saying tonight, I am in you. And while you're waiting to see me, I'm going to do two things for you. Number one, I'm going to continue to make God known to you. I have made him known to you, and I am going to continue to make him known to you. I'm going to continue to reveal the truth about God, his character, his ways, his will, his purpose for your life, your calling. I'm going to continue to make God known to you. And secondly, I'm going to continue to shed abroad the love of God in your heart. You are gonna fall more and more in love with God and that love is going to affect your relationships with other people. It's going to help you love others. I'm going to be in you. I'm going to continue to make God known to you and the love of God is going to be inside of you. That's his promise and I believe that's what he's saying to you tonight and to me. While you're waiting to see me, I'm going to continue to make God known to you and my love will be in you. Ladies and gentlemen, that promise is the mortar and the glue of our unity. Our knowledge of God, our relationship with him, our connection to him and our love for him and our love for one another is what brings us together. A great analogy is that of a triangle. God's at the top of the triangle. We're at the bottom. You're at one corner. All the other Christians are at the other corner. And as you get to know God better and better, you're ascending up the triangle. And as we get to know God better and better, we're ascending up the triangle. We're getting closer to the one who is love. And as we get closer to the one who is love, what happens to us? 
we get closer together. As we get closer to God, as he makes God known to us and puts his love in us, as we get closer to him, we get closer together. It's our unity. It's powerful. So two supernatural realities that Jesus prays into our life. Realities that let us know that, hey, he's with us and lets them know, hey, he must be with them. First, that we would be unified and second, that we would see him glorified. So John chapter 17, a powerful, powerful passage revealing to us what's important to Jesus. He prays for himself, what was important to him, that he would be glorified and that would come through the cross. And so what should be important to us? The cross, a cross-focused people. He prays for our protection, the protection of the disciples, and that would come through his name and through his word. And so what should we be focused on? The word of God. So a cross-focused people and then the word-focused people. And then tonight, he prays for unity. He prays for us to see him glorified. So what's on his heart? That we would do life together. That we would be all about one another. So a cross-focused people, a word-focused people, and a fellowship-focused people. That's what's important to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word, which is spirit and it's life. And we're just so privileged to be able to listen in as your son speaks with you and and pours out his heart, the deep treasures of his heart. Thank you, Lord, for preserving this and and reminding the apostle John of everything that, that you said on that night. We want to be a people who are focused on the cross, who are focused on the word, and who are focused on one another, because that's important to you, Jesus. And so I pray that by the power of your spirit, that that would be important to us and a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you can stand for the closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.